0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Popular Podagogy. I'm your host, Nathan Chaney, and this podcast is being brought to you by the Faculty of Education at Queen's University. We're very fortunate today to be joined by a Queen's faculty member at the Faculty of Education and a researcher who's looking at uh, students with exceptionalities and how they've been affected during this pandemic. So I'd like to welcome on Ian Matheson. Ian, welcome to the podcast.
1: Excited to be here, Nathan. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. So Ian, obviously over this past year, things have been a little bit challenging for everybody. It's been a little bit different for everybody. Um, you know, everything is, has changed and a big part of that has been the school system. And, you know, we're filming this or recording this uh, at the end of May right now. We're in Ontario. There's a lot of discussion about, you know, what is the benefit of going back to school at this point in time? What is not the benefit? And you're looking back at the past year and also seeing you know, who was affected and how is that affected. So can you tell us a little bit more about some of the implications that learning from home have had on students with exceptionalities and, and on uh, individuals who um, maybe are not being brought up in that conversation or that discussion? Yeah,
1: that's a great question and a broad one. Um, A lot of themes we could probably go into, but maybe the best place to start, Nathan, is that it seems like we're seeing from preliminary research findings focused on the pandemic that uh, vulnerable youth, whether they're students with exceptionalities or just part of a broader category of vulnerable youth, uh, are, are experiencing greater adversity at home because, again, as teachers, we're less positioned to be able to notice the types of things that we might have been able to notice. I think I saw a recent stat that in Quebec uh, they've seen a decline in the number of reportings that teachers have made on behalf of students um, because again we're not seeing as much happening and when you think about particularly students with special education needs students with exceptionalities um, we we can see less and therefore we can do less I think in a remote environment necessarily that doesn't mean there isn't a lot that we can do in terms of finding opportunities for direct support but I really sympathize with teachers. My wife is one because, uh, you know, we have a lot of discussions about how really we're dropped into this kind of environment and we're doing what we can to still have rigor in our teaching, to follow the curriculum, to allow students access, but then also to balance that with understanding they're going going through a lot of challenges right now, socially and emotionally. And so sometimes that particular direct support tied to their IEP or whatever it may be, you're kind of negotiating that, I think, as a teacher and thinking, well, I, I want to be able to focus on the academics, but I also want to give the students some space. And so that's kind of almost like an extra accommodation that we didn't necessarily consider, at least to the same degree when, when schools were in person.
0: So what would be some advice that you would have for teachers who are, you know, working through that type of situation and and trying to balance, you know, making sure that the students feel emotionally healthy and and are you know cared for and and feel welcome but also ensuring that you know academically we're trying to keep up as best we can
1: i think trying to find time and space to connect individually with those students would be the biggest best piece of advice i could give it seems like uh, a lot of us experience this collectively that there, a lot of screens are black, uh, blank, and we we don't necessarily know if students are engaged or if they've just signed on and, you know, the, uh, the mic is muted. And so I think it can be challenging to know what kind of experience we're having. And so just just like in person, the best advice I think that any teacher can, can take is connect with all of your students. And those with special uh, education needs are no different that I think we need to best understand what their challenges are. And that can come through the IEP and the IPRC process and, you know, their history and academics, previous teachers, parents. But I think a big part of it can come from what their experience is, you know, how they're finding things. And, and that's why I think it's really important. And, you know, my, my wife has done this a number of times. I think a lot of teachers are doing this. They're finding time and space to connect to students. And that seems to be making a difference because students are ultimately the ones signing on. They're the ones working through assignments and, probably struggling to connect socially with peers because there isn't really space to do that. So I just think that check-in where it's not public, it's not in front of any other students, it's it's really a one-on-one just as it would be in school honestly is is sometimes easier because in school if you have a student stay behind for a couple of minutes, they may feel like, "Oh, I'm the student who has to stay behind" or in class or the teacher has to talk to me quietly and privately and others are seeing that. You know, through Zoom and other online platforms other students don't have to see that. No one needs to know that that's, That there's that connection being made. So I think in some ways it offers an opportunity for um, even more privacy and, uh, and anonymity for students that are struggling with that compared to their peers.
0: So one of the things that you mentioned earlier, and, and it kind of builds off what you were just talking about, is that vulnerable students have been almost more vulnerable as a result of this. And one of the things that I was thinking about is, you know, we had a lot of students when I was teaching that the school was kind of their I don't want to call it a safe place, but it was a second home. It was a place that they could come and look forward to come to coming to and, and be comfortable at. And so during this pandemic, you know, how do you reach those students who are, are looking to have that kind of escape or are looking to have that as a, as an alternative to being at home. And I mean, all of us have gone a little bit crazy. I'm sure staying at home for as long as we have, it's not it's not unreasonable to then think about what that does to students who maybe are looking to have um, a different a different different atmosphere than than what they have at home right now. So, uh, I guess my question is, you know, how can we reach those students and make it so that during this time we're actually able to to better support them too? Because as we've noted you know, the equity gap can increase quite a bit when we get to this point. And trying to minimize that also means trying to reach those students who who are maybe hard to reach right now.
1: Yeah, that's that's such a difficult uh, and important question, a great question to ask Nathan. Um, I wish I had a great answer for it. But I guess what I think about primarily is that just reaching them is, is the most important thing. So whatever it looks like, um, maybe is less important than us just trying to connect and trying to reach out and find time to say like, hey, listen, even if you're not able to make it to class, let's try once every day or every couple of days to find five minutes together where we can connect. I think I think this is where we get into this space as educators of considering priorities uh, here and, and what matters most. And um, ultimately, of course, like there's a there's a pretty easy hierarchy there that we want students to be safe and happy and healthy and to be okay, generally, and curriculum and um, meeting curriculum expectations probably are always going to be secondary to that. But like you say, when students aren't coming in every day, and when when we're not able to see if they're okay, and and see how well they're doing, and we know about the importance of, you know, having social connections, direct social connections, when that's not happening, I think we need to say that our teaching needs to change and focus more on just finding time to check in with students and get get the best sense we can of of how they're doing, uh, what what their experience has been like at home, what they're dealing with, what their challenges are. Because again, one of the big responsibilities we have as teachers is the duty to report when things aren't going well. When um, you know whether that's because parents are absent, uh, there's neglect happening, or whether it's because parents are working as hard as they can and they just can't provide. Uh, what their students need, like that's that's a reality too, and it's no one's to blame in that case. But I think it's that's again where we have to ask ourselves, what is our responsibility as educators? And in a lot of provinces and territories, we're seeing these programs where schools are are willing and able to provide access to internet, access to technology, and that type of thing. So we're hopefully eliminating that uh, possibility where students just don't have the uh, you know the economic means to be able to connect and access education. Ultimately, I just think it's about finding a channel, a direct channel to students. And it's great if, you know, 70% of them are able to come online and attend a class and engage every day. And, and we, we get a sense that they're doing okay. But when there's this collection of students we're never hearing from, I think we need to take it uh, or put it to the top of our list as educators to say, okay, my job now is to find out what's going on with the student. Why am I not seeing them? Why am I not hearing from them? What's happening there?
0: Absolutely. And I think you hit the nail on the head there when you talked about making that connection. And and it's nice that it actually is a little bit more of a private connection, but if we can have that connection between the student and the teacher, you know, that's a, a, a trust factor that maybe couldn't be in existence when you, like you said, when they're having to stay behind after class or they're having to do that in front of their peers, this is a much more private setting for them to build that trust and, you know, if you can get buy-in on either side, that's a really a really big win. And and I wanna spin this into a positive light here, um, and not go too too far and too deep. But you know, that's one example of something that could be really good that comes out of uh this pandemic and this and uh not that it's a good a good thing that's coming out of the pandemic, but it's a positive change in the way that we do things. Um, so I, I guess my next question is just looking at, you know, are there any other things that have been actually a positive about the shift to home learning for, for some of these students? And um, is there anything that we can learn from this and then take forward as we move into the school system of the future? Or, or you know, how, how has this pandemic changed what we're going to see in, in schools in the future to better support students?
1: Yeah, great question.
0: Uh, And obviously, it's it's nice to go to
1: a positive place here because so much has been stressful and negative um, with this experience, this universal experience. A couple of things jump out to me. One uh, being that it seems like parents, uh, in some cases, are getting to know their children uh, better. They're getting uh, more time with them because they're at home, of course, with them. Uh, And so, I think they're seeing their child as a student in, in a way that they they maybe never had before. They're having direct experiences, uh, seeing them, them struggle with things and seeing them succeed. And so in that way, I think you're, you're getting to know your child more. And while it's negative in some sense to see them struggle, it's information for a parent uh, to A, realize, oh, this is what it's like for them. I kind of understand them more and, and therefore I, I'm in a better position to support them as a parent or a guardian. And B, that's information that is something else I can share with the teacher, uh, whether it's, you know, staying remote or, or when we go back, it's information to say, this is what I'm seeing directly. And it's obviously something that you can't see because you're not here in my living room uh, or you're not able to spend, you know, X amount of time with my student because you've got 30 of them, whatever it may be. This, I think, gets into this place of the role parents and families more generally can play in supporting uh, the education of our students is that they can notice and see things that parents or sorry that teachers aren't in a position to notice because they've got a, a distributed responsibility you know across a group of students so i guess that would be one uh, and two i think that these things more broadly represent opportunities i think there's a lot happening here that again can be challenging that hopefully parents teachers administrators, all stakeholders are noticing that we can say, okay, these are things that really matter because we're noticing the absence of them now. We're, we're noticing the absence of, you know, social engagement for our kids uh, how difficult it can be for them to focus online. I think we're learning a more, more about what can work and what can't work for our students and uh, what really matters to them. So ideally, like it's kind of nice to move into a summer where educators can along with taking some much Ah, uh, deserve vacation time. Hopefully, educators can start to think about uh, hopefully returning and and what kinds of things we really need to put more funding into, more resources into, and, and support into. So, if you know if social connections and relationships really seem to matter, and that was probably one of the biggest findings of some of this preliminary research we did is that relationships seem to be the most important thing how are we leveraging relationships within our school system? How are we um, promoting those and focusing on them to support our students, particularly with special education needs? You know, it's it's interesting, like we're moving into this really exciting, positive space in the summer, but some parents we spoke to, particularly with children that have intellectual or developmental disabilities, they're moving into a space where, um, their only social connection was the classroom because their kids maybe don't feel they really have any authentic or genuine friendships with students. So they go into the summer and those are maybe two months spent where they're like looking forward to seeing their classmates again or their friends again, right? Because they don't really have that outside of it. So it makes me realize again, that like, I'm, I'm, ever cognizant that the summer isn't the same for every kid for me you know I it was a time where I could see my friends all the time but for some of our kids they don't have that put in place and so I I think it also pushes us in the direction of asking questions about what kinds of social programs can exist maybe virtually that can go on and don't necessitate having a teacher there to formally run program or whatever it may be just social relationships are so important for kids and when they're not something you can um, just have and create uh, easily, it's it's something that really needs focus and, and action on the part of educators, administrators, whatever
0: it may be. Yeah, so I guess one of the areas that I was, I was hoping that we would touch on is, is that, is that how can we take the information that we're learning, like the importance of relationships, and then apply it in a way that is going to help support the students as they move forward, And, you know, we've had a lot of conversation about online learning, we've had a lot of conversation about, you know, what is here to stay and what's not. And I think that there probably will be some form of blended classrooms in the future. I don't think that what we've done during the pandemic is necessary, even though many of us would say, I don't ever want to see a zoom call again, I don't think that that's necessarily the way that things are going to go. And I think you bring up a good point and that school is so much more than just the academics, right? We have our classes, we have our curriculum, we have our teachers who are trained in delivering that curriculum. But, you know, for as long as I've been involved in education, you've always heard about the hidden curriculum, or you've heard about, um, you know, the, the social aspect of school or the extracurriculars, and all of those things, for a lot of students were taken away this year. And, you know, you don't often think about the, the positives that come along with it, which are that are students who maybe don't fit into some of those extracurricular activities or students who don't have those easy connections in another way. You know, we were kind of pushed into that through the online format and how can we take those students who maybe were able to benefit in this format or, or who had more of an opportunity and bring that back to the classroom so that we're learning from what we've gained and we can, we can build upon that. So I think that's a really good lesson that that you've kind of highlighted. And I hope um, that we can continue to see that through your research there. Um, so going back a little bit now um, in terms of special education, there's been a lot of uh, challenges over the past year and a lot of things that really have been, um, exacerbated. And and I know you've done a lot of work on this in the past, but for parents, it's been much more upfront this year, I think, even than in years past, because they're they're there and they're seeing it and they're working through that with their child every single day. So how do you see the parent and teacher relationship kind of evolving through the pandemic and and you you alluded to it a little bit earlier when you said that the, the parents are seeing it all the time now and they they are, they're a little bit more aware. do you think that that will be stronger as we move move past this and kind of return to a, a more in school, or do you think that once we get back to school and things kind of return to whatever the future of normal looks like, that that might go into the into the past? What's kind of your thoughts on that?
1: Gosh, I hope it improves. Um, <laughs> I, it's, I, I try to be an optimist, but it's we are seeing in some of our preliminary research again that, well, some parents in some cases are finding that they're, they're happy and satisfied with teachers' efforts. Uh, some, I think, feel that there is more that could be done. And so in some ways, this pandemic might create a little more tension in that parent slash guardian and, and teacher slash school relationship, which is such an important one. I just, I really think that the most important thing between parents, guardians, and the school or teachers directly is that we try to describe what we're seeing and remind ourselves that our shared focus is on the well-being of the student. I don't think any of us are in a good position to tell others how to do their job. Even if parents are teachers and they're like, look, I'm a teacher. This is how, what you need to be doing. They're not that student's teacher. They're not teaching that class. And so they don't really understand. Just the same as I don't think teachers are in a position to tell parents how to raise their kid. They're not at home all the time. As you talk about Nathan, seeing what's happening with that child. So if we can acknowledge that as both stakeholder groups that we shouldn't be telling others how to do their job and that our position should really just be on describing what we see, describing what we're noticing, describing the conditions and sharing that information, not prescribing to each other, here's how it should be done, but just saying, here's what we have, here's what we know. And then collectively coming together and saying, with all of this information, what makes the most sense? Getting everyone around the table. You know, I'm finding increasingly that I'm excited about the prospect of us as an education system involving students, parents, guardians, more and more in the uh, IPRC process, uh, which of course leads to individual education plans. So finding ways particularly formally to support our students with special education needs. And I I just, I think that has to come with everyone sharing their perspective, uh, you know, their experiences, what they're noticing, and then coming together to say, okay, we have all this information, we've got these resources available, what seems to make the most sense. As soon as you leave somebody off the table, whether it's the student's perspective or the parent's perspective, that's just less information to go on. And it's, you know, a couple of pieces of the puzzle that are suddenly missing. So I just feel like broadly um, while I like to remain optimistic that that can happen. And I, I actually do think it can happen. It's difficult sometimes when you have a negative experience and and therefore maybe parents or guardians are less willing to work with the school because they, perceive that the school has not done enough or parents are feeling like oh the you know or sorry teachers are feeling like the parents aren't doing enough at home because they're just kind of letting their child you know plug in and they're not doing what they maybe need to to support so I just think conversation communication has to happen and eventually that can lead to the sharing of resources you know information knowledge that type of thing so that's hopefully where where it will go. Um, I guess time will tell. But ultimately, again, we just need to acknowledge that none of us are experts in every position concerning the child. But we do share, hopefully, a common interest in their well-being and development.
0: Absolutely. And I think a lot of what you're talking about there is a lot of what I actually have seen and, and felt when I've been reading through some of your Articles and research and everything else, and that's the the key factor of communication and the communication between all stakeholders, whether it's parents, parents to students, students to parents, parents to teachers, teachers to parents, you know, administration to parents, and and uh, all the way along there. And and um, I I was reading through a, a past co publication that you had, had had, and there was an example that was given there, and it was it was describing the different types of parents a little bit and talking about what they were like. And um, there was a, a parent um, who was advocating for their child. And and I think it's fantastic that they were advocating for their child, but the, the scenario was, uh, uh, I'm guessing, a fictional scenario. And it had the parent who had sent the teacher a message at night, and then the teacher didn't respond. And so the parent then went to the school principal and said how the communication was so poor. And as a former teacher, I got my back up and I was like, well, it's night. Like, it's night. We have to have a break. Like, we can't always be on and, and doing that. And, and then I started to think about it. I was like, well, OK, but what could have been done before that to have gotten to that point? And how could we have improved that communication? Um, and so I'm of two minds here as, as, as a former teacher and knowing how busy I was and how challenging it was to have that type of communication between myself and parents and, and keeping that going. I have the thought of, okay, well, how do we how do we make that communication better without adding more work to a teacher? But then as a parent, I can also see their side of it where it's, well, how do I know what's going on with my my child and how do I know what I can do there? So uh, what I'm hoping or what I want to ask of you is what are some ways that both sides can improve their communication while not adding to the plate of the other too too much? Because. You know, teachers are very busy all of the time. And it's very challenging to, you know, carve out 20, 30 minutes every day, every second day, you know, a couple of times a week to have those conversations, especially if you have student more than one student in your classroom who is on an IEP or who has um, this type of need. But at the same time, if I'm a parent and I'm a parent of a student that you know, I need to have that information so that I can better support them at home. Um, Again, going off what you're saying, which is assuming that all stakeholders are looking out for the best well-being of this child, you know, what is it that we can do that's better? Is there any solution to that? Yeah, you know, I um,
1: my kids are so young that I can't put myself in a position to say, like, here's how to parent an adolescent or, you know, a middle schooler, but I'll do my best here without um, trying to preach too much, because I think it's a great question, Nathan one thing. And I,
0: uh, I also oh. recognize it's probably a million dollar question, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's probably one of those things where if we had a, a bona fide answer to right. it, it would have been done by now. It's not a simple solution. So I, I understand where you're coming from with that, but I, you know, it's a, I have I to just put think, you in a hard spot. It wouldn't be fun. Fair enough.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, and I think it's a great question. Like it's a good exercise. I think that we should always be asking ourselves as teacher, what can I do this year to foster that relationship? Because I know it's going to benefit overall. Having more people involved is going to benefit, and the same in the same vein for a guardian or a parent. One thing that um, you know, just to I guess praise my wife a little more, which is important. Uh, I do think she's doing a phenomenal job, and she gets this, I think, from other teachers and probably her own thinking. But she is so willing to share her, I think, Google Classroom with uh, with parents, and anytime they've connected and said like, "Just want to check and see how things are going," she's very quick to say, "I've got everything up there." Uh, and it's got as much information as the students have and um, I I really love that approach because it's kind of it's pulling back the curtain and saying listen there's nothing we're doing that I'm not okay with you seeing you can see everything so for teachers broadly opening up their teaching opening up what's happening in the classroom uh, so that parents can access I think is so important and you talked earlier on about how we may have more of a hybrid or different kind of looking education going forward because of this experience we've had and perhaps the opportunities that have come from it. So whether we have all of our learning online in the Google Classroom or it's a newsletter or whatever it may be, I think teachers can ask themselves how accessible is what's going on in the classroom and the learning that's taking place in the classroom, how accessible is that to parents or guardians? Should they want to access it? Because again, every parent's going to be a little bit different in in how much they get involved. But I think teachers can ask themselves, to what degree can I make that information available should they want to have it? That would be one thing I would say for the side of of teachers. And for parents, uh, it's tricky because again, like I said, I'm not there and I, I don't necessarily have a great answer for that. But I suppose, I think if parents were willing to reach out to their hit child's teachers and just say, this is a bit about my, um, my situation, you know, it doesn't have to tell specific details, but just to say, like, my routine with my child in relation to their education is this, this is the degree to which we talk about it. Um, This is how much I'm usually involved. This is usually when they're doing their homework. This is what I notice at home. I think that's great. And I don't think it's a lot to ask, even if you have a lot of children you love and care about all of them, and I think have a lot of valuable information. So to at least be willing to introduce yourself, talk a little bit about your dynamic and context at home, what things are like, and then what you know about your child in a descriptive way, not a prescriptive way. Just to say, here's kind of the way things are for us and the way I understand my child. I think that can only help teachers. And again, you've been a teacher, Nathan, and you know that when you've got dozens of students, it can be hard to find the time, extra time to go through all those details. But what's nice about it is that, as you know, when as teachers we apply principles of universal design for learning and when we differentiate our instruction, we don't necessarily have to do something specific for every child. If things are set up inclusively, uh, that that can really help maybe most of our students. And so then it's only in a situation where we notice something is going awry, the student's challenged with something particularly, that we have that information available. And we can say, well, now I might reach out to the parent. I know, you know, how they prefer to be reached out to. I know their work situation a little bit more. I've got this extra information. I can use that. I think it just, it opens the door up for that kind of communication. I don't think teachers need to be phone like calling on the phone, every parent or guardian. Um, and, you know, certainly not all the time. I, I think that kind of thing, it's great when that can happen. But I think we need to, again, recognize, like in your situation, a weekend for a teacher should be the same as a weekend for for anybody, that people need a break from things and that you can't be expected to respond to emails at all times. I think everybody needs to be able to recharge a bit. And so, again, it's just about having information accessible uh, to us on both sides so that it, it just betters that relationship, makes it easier to connect when that sort of thing needs to happen.
0: And I think one of the key things that you mentioned there, and I don't want it to fall under the, uh, because there was a lot of important information that you provided there, but it's the way that we approach our conversations. Um, and so you, you brought up the difference between descriptive conversations and prescriptive and descriptive, uh, is a much more approachable way I find of having that, that conversation between two people. I, I don't, I've never met and I don't think I ever will meet a perfect teacher. And I would say that I have never met and I don't think I will ever meet a perfect parent. And the reason for that is because there is no prescriptive way of doing things. There is no, this is exactly how you have to do it. But I think we get our backs up when someone comes and and talks to us in a way of, and this goes both ways from both the teacher and the parent perspective of this is exactly how you have to do it because the person that is, best suited to be that child's parent or guardian is their parent or guardian. And the person that's best suited to be that child's parent or teacher is their teacher. And there's different things that are involved with that. But if you're having that communication where you're describing what you're doing, it also allows the other to better work off each other. And so I think that's a really important thing that we can often forget. And I also think that makes that communication easier so that there's less, you know, blame or or uh, less, less uh, shame even that comes from either side of, you know, well, if my student's struggling instead of saying, or my child is struggling, instead of saying, this is your fault, because you're not doing X, Y, and Z, it's saying, okay, well, this is what I'm doing. What are you doing? And how can we make it so that there's a bigger gap, or that it closes that gap? Uh, so that this is benefiting the child. And once we get to that point of communication between the two and realizing that you're allies and not enemies is really when we're going to, I think improve upon the situation for everybody and and it sounds very simple, but we're all human beings and we all have our own egos and our own challenges and our own time challenges and you know, frustrations with communication. If there was no frustrations with communication, you know, the world would be a much happier place, I'm sure. but yeah. Um, you know, that's something that I think is a really important message to take out of what, what you just said there. So I really want to thank you for bringing that up.
1: Yeah. And it, you, actually, you make me think of, I think you you raise an important point yourself here that I'm thinking in that relationship, it's important to try to do at least two things. One, to get a sense of what information that other party has. So, you know, teachers finding out what parents have and parents finding out what teachers have. But also, I think it's important, and maybe this is one of the missing links is asking the question, Help me understand your perspective. And when we don't do that and we just assume we know their perspective or we understand the situation, that's, I think, where you can run into tensions and the ultimate breakdown of these relationships. If you look to try to understand and ask, Help me understand your perspective, not necessarily with that language, but coming from a place where you genuinely want to know, What's it like to be the teacher of my child? What's it like to be a parent of this child? I think that can foster this kind of like bridge or relationship where it's like, oh, okay, we're trying to understand each other. I think that's ultimately where a lot of evil in our world comes from, right? Fear of the unknown and and that can lead to discrimination, all kinds of things, violence. To me, it's about trying to understand the other and their position and then trying to get some information from them to serve that ultimate purpose of supporting the child. So I, I just like how you put that, Nathan.
0: Well, thank you. You know, I, I really went for it there, and that's, that's what I was going for. Uh, we're going to take a quick break right now, but we'll be right back with more for me and Matheson. Are you an occasional teacher looking to improve your job prospects? Are you an experienced teacher trying to reach the next pay scale? Are you interested in improving your overall teaching practice? Queen's Continuing Teacher Education has you covered. With easy-to-access online courses, you can log on to your course from anywhere you have access to the internet. Courses offered by CTE range from special education to technological education to safe and accepting schools. Queen's CTE courses work with your schedule, have supportive, expert instructors that want to help you succeed. Registration is fast and easy with no commitment to pay until the Friday before the course starts. What are you waiting for? Visit coursesforteachers.ca for more information or to sign up today. That's coursesforteachers.ca. All right, welcome back to Popular Podagogy. We're fortunate to be joined today by Ian Matheson, who is a researcher at the Faculty of Education here at Queen's. So Ian, before the break, we were talking a lot about communication and how the parent-teacher, parent-administrator uh, kind of triangle um, can be improved and, and also including the child in that communication as well. Um, and one of the things that we talked about is changing the way that we we communicate and, and looking at at how we're approaching each other. And I think that's another thing that we should talk about is how can we encourage more positive communication? Because oftentimes when there's there's communication between a teacher and a parent. It's often when something has gone wrong or whether there's stress, but increasing that positive communication is something that might change that relationship. So can I can I ask you, what are some ways that we can improve upon that?
1: Yeah, good question. Um, I, I feel like, again, because we were talking about before the break that there can be you know, this range of parenting styles and, and maybe even teacher styles too, in terms of communicating with the other party. I don't think it hurts to start with a guide uh, that can be used for anyone that's looking to foster uh, or or, you know, just begin to build that relationship of the types of questions you might ask. For many parents, again, when they have a child with special education needs, there's a point before there's an identification. And then there's a lot of time after, of course, and maybe before they know nothing about what autism spectrum disorder is, or what a learning disability is. And so I think it would serve parents uh, and guardians well, and everybody well, really the student and the teacher as well. If there was some kind of guide where it was like, these are the types of questions that you might want to begin to ask. Because again, we sometimes don't even know what to ask. We don't even know the right questions. So Having some kind of guide like that, I think would be helpful for parents, whether it's initial diagnosis, you're just dealing with this and finding this information out. And now where do you go? Or whether it's about starting to build a relationship with your teacher. Again, some parents might never look at it and might feel they never need it. But I just think that having that kind of information as a starting place can be a really great guide. And it might give you pause to think, well, I was going to approach it this way. Now, I might ask this question a little bit differently, because the way I ask it might change the dynamic of our relationship. So I think that's helpful. And I think the same thing could be in place for teachers. Teachers are super smart, obviously, and very good at what they do, hopefully, but they don't necessarily get trained. At least, I don't see a lot of that training happening in faculties of education about how you should build a relationship with a guardian or parent. Important as it is or can be, um, it isn't the primary thing that we're you know, helping teachers learn how to do in, in faculties of education, and teacher education programming. It's just another thing. So sometimes, Nathan, I don't know if you felt this, but sometimes I feel like overwhelmed almost vicariously by the amount of things that we ask our teachers to to learn how to do. And it's almost like as they're walking out the door with their degree, it's like, oh, yeah, and there's this, 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 you know, and then you trail off and it's just like, whoa, what? And then they're dropped into things, right? So it just seems like. The role of the teacher has always been many things, and there are many, many more things. And one thing I've learned this year, I got to teach a course where uh, it's focused on, you know, the professional learning community. We've really focused on the importance of teachers communicating with other teachers within their school. That can be so powerful and helpful. And I, I, I don't think anyone who's a great teacher does it in isolation. I think great teachers do it together. They're pulling the rope in the same direction. And so whether it's like venting and trying to understand why something didn't go so well, or even, you know, why a dialogue with a parent didn't go so well, or whether it's generating ideas for, you know, how to teach a particular lesson, connecting with other teachers, colleagues, I think is really, really helpful. So, you know, it's why it's so positive when we see these parental groups that get together online or in person or whatever, They, they can work together to tackle situations and understand perspectives and equip each other better. So, I don't know whose responsibility that is necessarily to set them up, but I think in part teacher education programs like ours, something we really, really need to ensure is that our teachers understand the importance of communicating with other teachers and of seeing communication with parents as a potential asset for better supporting students. Uh, And again, for parents, I think just helping them to be the other side of that relationship, helping them to foster it, that could come in part from some kind of guide to get them started on it but I don't know I just think as as a teacher I think maybe it's more your role to just try to reach out in some way whether it's a direct phone call or not it could just be a letter that you sent home I think try to invite that as teachers you don't always know what you're going to get with it but I don't think it ever hurts to say that you're willing to uh, try to connect with them because you you really think it can help and obviously they are an expert of, of parenting for their child so yeah I don't know lots to think about there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I I like that you brought in more than just the positive communication in the parent and teacher relationship, but also the positive communication that can come from talking to colleagues, talking to others uh, who are in a similar situation to you and working through that situation, because it's a way for you to have a, a, a resource network, whether you are a parent, whether you are a teacher you know, there, there's groups of people that you can connect to and not feel on your own. And when you're not feeling on your own in any walk of life, that's when you're not feeling as vulnerable or as overwhelmed. And, you know, I, I, this is a completely different topic, but I, I became a parent in the last year. And, you know, one of the first things that we did is we joined like 14 different Facebook groups that talked about everything. And some of it's terrifying because you get all the scary (laughs) things, but a lot of it is really good information. And, you know, it's, it's what prevents you from uh, doing things that you shouldn't do and, and also helps you do things that help with the development of your child. And it's the same thing that goes for teaching for parenting for being an administrator, you know, having that support group, having these other people, even if you don't uh, know them directly, it can be really helpful. So uh, I think that's a really good point. But we are going to go on a lighter note here. Uh, We've had a lot of serious conversation, and so we need to have a little silly. And so as you know, uh, if you have listened to this podcast before, we often have a segment in our podcast called the Classroom Confession. And the point of the classroom confession is just to lighten things up. We do tackle a lot of serious topics on this podcast, but we also like to recognize that school and uh, education in general is a fun place. And it's where we want to have fun and it's where we want to laugh and enjoy ourselves. And so the classroom confession is also meant to, to show the lighter side of things. And so we ask our guests who come on, who have some experience teaching, who have gone through the education system, um, to share a story that's uh, something funny or silly or goofy that has happened either in their classroom or while they were a student. And so, Ian, we ask you today, do you have a classroom confession for us?
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's like a, a little story that I found kind of funny at the time and ultimately, I think, led to some, some real bonding with my students. I was a, a teacher candidate here at our faculty many, many years ago and uh, we had I think some it must have been like a Halloween type event or something like that where we we asked teachers and teacher candidates to dress up just as students were going to and uh, I was I'm I'm not the best at coming up with really creative ideas but I remember at that time thinking like I had a grade six class I think and many of them were hockey players and I'm not great at hockey myself uh, but really enjoy it and come from like a hockey family and So I was like, well, what I can do is I can dress up in in hockey equipment. I think that would be really cool because I think a lot of students would like that I'm doing that. And it's kind of almost an over the top outfit when you put on like all of the gear because there's a lot, as you know, Nathan. So I did that and uh, it was really cool because you got a lot of like shock from students seeing you dressed up and wearing a helmet and you look really big and all the stuff. And that was great. And I I didn't think to bring like a change of clothes. I didn't even think past probably the first 10 minutes of, oh, this will be cool. Because for the rest of the day, I sweat a lot as it is, but I sweat a lot more when I'm wearing the full gear and the classroom isn't necessarily very cool. So as I'm going through the day as a teacher, of course, you're getting within a few feet of students leaning over their shoulder, helping, uh, you know, moving around all this stuff. I think everyone became increasingly aware of the smell I was generating That was left on my equipment and probably new smells that I was generating just in sweating. So I think it became kind of a joke that for the rest of the day, like students were like hesitant to ask for my help. And I would, as a joke, walk by a group of kids and they would, you know, gasp at the smell. So it it just became really fun. And it became one of those things that you remember. And I think I'm reminded of how one of the most important and powerful things we can do with students is, is share experiences with them. Because I think it brings us together. It teaches us about each other in different ways. And it can be a disruption to the everyday getting to know you in the classroom when it's something silly or funny like that. So it was a joke we we revisited a lot. And I think that even in the years later that I visited as a supply teacher or a researcher and saw these students, you know, in later grades or eventually in high school, they instantly like remembered that. And it's just, it's fun to have that. So I, I always think back to that and think. You know, while it was one particular story, it's a reminder that it's important to to share experiences and do things outside of the curriculum with your students going forward.
0: So that's a very bold move, because if I was to wear my hockey equipment through a school, I honestly think that you would be able to see like the cartoon (laughs) that come off of you. And that students would like, it would be like the parting of the sea. Like you wouldn't Absolutely. see anyone on either side of me. I would just have the hallway to myself. It'd be like if Pepe Le Pew just walked through the, yeah. the hallways if I was walking through with my hockey equipment. Yeah. Uh, but I like what you said there about shared experiences and I'll, I'll practice what, what we're talking about here. Cause I had a similar Halloween experience uh, when I was in, in my bachelor of education program. And um, we had a very important lecture that was taking place on Halloween and it was Halloween. And, you know, we were teachers, we were, we're used to being silly. We're used to being a little bit goofy. Uh, so a friend of mine and, and myself, we decided, well, it's Halloween. We're going to dress up obviously because it's Halloween and that's what you do on Halloween. So we showed up to this lecture and we were the only two people that were dressed up in the entire, everyone else was wearing like a button up shirt, like very nice clothing, very well-capped, very professional, and I showed up as Mario uh, and <laughs> sat throughout the entire lecture, asked three questions of the speaker because I wasn't <laughs> going to back down from it. And by the end of the the night, they were chuckling and laughing at, at at our expense, but also with us because we thought it was pretty funny too. And I I did share that experience with all of my students when we talked about dressing up for Halloween and what we were going to do. And they got a kick out of that too. So I think what you said there makes a lot of sense. And, you know, sometimes you're embarrassed in the moment, but it makes a funny story afterwards. And that funny story can break the ice with a lot of different people. And so that's a really good way of thinking about it, especially when you're sitting in the hockey equipment or in the Mario costume at that time. So couldn't um, agree more. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, thanks for coming on today. It's been really great to be able to have this conversation. I think it's an important one and hopefully um, we can continue this conversation uh, another time too. And, hopefully others who are listening to this can continue that conversation with you as well. So this is where I ask, you know, where can people find you? What, what, what are you working on?
1: Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't have social media, really. I think I have a LinkedIn that I don't like put anything up there. So probably this is a reminder that I need to go and upload some of my more recent publications and things I'm working on, on my faculty profile page. So I, I will do that. But You know, I'm in this new directorship role, and uh, a part of that is getting more time working with students in our graduate program. But for anyone who's listening, uh, I I love to chat with people just as we are here about any of these things. So, um, you know, where I'm going with my research, we're starting to look at a colleague and I about um, how higher education institutions, post secondary institutions, are supporting students with exceptionalities and how we prepare them for that transition. I'm also doing a lot of thinking and work related to Uh, how students understand exceptionalities and and how we can assist them in the identification process all the way through um, to understand what kinds of challenges they experience and to prepare them to self-advocate. That's kind of the area that I've been moving into. So if you're interested in having any of those discussions with me, you can email me at myfirstname.lastname at queensy.ca, Ian.masson at queensy.ca. It's really the only channel I can think of (laughs) apart from giving away my cell phone number to connect with people because like i said i just don't have the social media channels i think it comes back to that conversation we had nathan about wanting to um carve out family time and personal time and that and i think that's why i don't go on those things as much as i should but just send me an email reach out uh, and i would love to to chat with anyone about any of these things so yeah always open for conversation
0: thanks ian that's great and thank you again for coming on and uh you know staying off social media in 2021 is probably the best idea you've ever had and not saying (laughs) something. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a better, better choice than I've made with myself. So well, thanks Uh, for the
1: opportunity. I love the show.
0: Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, and that'll do it for another episode of popular podagogy. Uh, we'd like to thank our producer Josh for making us sound fantastic. Um, and you can, if you like what you hear and you're interested in hearing more, you can Uh, Find all of our episodes and subscribe pretty much anywhere you can get your podcasts on Google Play, Stitcher, uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, CFRC website, Faculty of Education website, and probably more. Uh, Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.